In case you've known me for less than two minutes, I'm the kind of person who likes to wing it. And by that I mean... Yes. No. I just like to turn up and see how things go. Bit of an adventure that way. It doesn't always work out though, does it? I remember a few years ago I was catching a plane to Sydney and the morning of the flight I was still running around trying to find the email with my ticket in it so I could print it out. I hadn't packed my bag. I couldn't find my wallet. I arrived at the airport. The gates were closed. The plane was taking off. Now when those gates are closed and the plane is out there on the tarmac and the engines are spinning, let me tell you, there is nothing you can do. You've missed your flight. The plane just can't stop and wait for someone who's running late. Thankfully, they don't. I've learned my lesson. Today's passage is all about God dwelling, coming to live with Israel. And if there is one lesson in this section of Exodus, it is that this is an area where you cannot wing it. In other words, you can't be half-hearted about God and hope that it'll just all work out. You can't just think, well, you know, I've heard God's a little bit forgiving. I'll just turn up there and, uh, you know, she'll be right. Because God is holy. And by that we mean God cannot tolerate sin. And that has huge implications for how you and I come to him. And that's what this section of Exodus is about. Before we read it, though, let's have a remind, uh, remind ourselves of what has happened in Exodus so far. The nation of Israel, the descendants of a man called Abraham, were slaves in Egypt in Exodus 1. They cried out to God. God heard their cry and he rescued them. And then last week we saw that God rescued them for a purpose that out of all the world, they would be his treasured possession. Now as good as that was last week to think that the nation of Israel would be special to him, Today takes it to a new level. Exodus 25, verse 8. Heather read this, but I wondered if you realised how staggering this verse is. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Did you hear that? Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. The last time... In the Bible that we saw God dwelling among his people was way back in Genesis 2 before sin. When Adam and Eve just walked in the Garden of Eden and God was walking around in the garden with them. Ever since then, there's been a distance between God and people. A distance that has to be there because of sin. That's all about to change. God is going to come and dwell, live with his people Again, How will it work? Well, that's what Exodus 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30 and 31 are all about. It's complicated. Because you do not come before a holy, powerful God unprepared. There's a lot of work that God needs to do to prepare his people to meet with him. Seven chapters worth, and it's all based around this thing called a sanctuary. A sanctuary just means a special place, God's holy place. And it comes in three stages. You can see them on your outline there. The first few chapters are talking about the building, the sanctuary itself, how to build it. Then it's talking about the priests, the people who will work in the building. And then it's talking about the sacrifices that will take place 
in the building. So let's look at those things one by one. Firstly, the sanctuary. Chapter 25, verse 8. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle, and tabernacle just is a word for tent. Make this tent and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now, you might have some pictures in your Bible of what this sanctuary looks like and there's all sorts of places on the internet you can go and they've got beautiful drawings of the sanctuary but really we don't know exactly what it looked like because right there it says that God will show Moses a pattern. In other words, Moses saw some blueprints, Moses saw a plan, they were the details of the sanctuary. We don't have all that. So we can't, we, we don't know exactly what it looks like. People argue about how long this was and that kind of stuff. This is not about us trying to see exactly what the, the tent was like. But there are some things that we need to learn about it, which is what these chapters are about. Verse 10, let's begin. Have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. A chest, it starts by describing a box. A cubit is uh, the way they used to measure from your elbow to your fingertip. So this box is about the size of a bath. Obviously, this is not the tent because it would be a very small one-man tent if this was the tent. No, it's a box. So we're starting by describing a box. It's a very fancy box. It's not a portable tent, a camping, hiking tent. It's made of gold. Verse 11. Overlay it, cover it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold moulding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the chest to carry it. We've got a tent at home and it is so complicated to put up and you've got springs and you've got pegs. This is pretty simple. There's just four holes and two poles to go through them. Did you notice that the whole thing is covered with gold? Even the poles are covered with gold. And this box is actually made to hold something as we read on. Verse 16. Then put in the ark of the testimony which I will give you. In other words, the laws that we read about last week, they will go in this box. And then the box has a lid. Verse 17. Make an atonement cover of pure gold Two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. So it's a lid that's going to fit exactly on the box. It's strange though because it's not called a lid, is it? It's called an atonement cover. Or some of your translations call it a mercy seat. Uh, Some translations have. Or it's a place of forgiveness. The lid of this box is called the place of forgiveness. What does that mean? Well, let's read on. At each end of the lid the lid where you find forgiveness, is a cherub. A cherub is a kind of flying angel. Chapter 25, verse 18. The plural of cherub is cherubim. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Now that's interesting. Because the only place so far in the entire Bible up to Exodus where cherubim are even mentioned was way back in Genesis 3. After sin where cherubim are guarding the way back to the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. So cherubim are like God's personal guard. You do not want to mess with cherubim. 
And now here, when God is about to dwell with people again, there's cherubim. So there's a box with God's word inside. In other words, God is a God who speaks. This is not like the other nations where we make an image that looks like God and bows down to it. No, we are putting God's words that we're going to listen to and read in the box. And then there's a lid with two cherubim guarding the place where you find forgiveness. So God is a God who wants to forgive. And yet the place of forgiveness is guarded. Why is that? Let's read on. Verse 23 goes on to talk about a table. We'd better speed up or we'll be here all day. Verse 23 to 30, there's a table. It's made of pure gold again and there's some bread on it. Verse 31 to 40 is the lighting. There's a lamp holder. It's very fancy. Again, it's made of pure gold. Then in chapter 26, we focus in on the actual tent. And now it's starting to sound a bit like you're walking down the aisle at Spotlight. Verse 1. Make the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen, blue, purple and scarlet yarn with cherubim worked into them by a skilled craftsman. And then there's sizes of curtains and there's loops of blue material and there's goat's hair curtains on top of those curtains and then there's sea cow leather curtains on top of those curtains and inside all those curtains the inside material are walls made of, you guessed it, pure gold. Then the different parts of this tent are given names. Everything inside the tent, inside the gold walls, is called the holy place, the special place. And inside this holy place goes the bread and the lampstand. It's all made of gold. This is special. But then at one end of the holy place, behind a special curtain, is another place and it is called the most holy place. And in there, in the most holy place, is the box, the place of forgiveness, the place where God will dwell. Chapter 26 and 27 describe all that in immaculate detail. And then in chapter 28, we change from the tent, the structure, to the priests who will work inside the tent. It starts in chapter 28 uh, with what the priests will wear. It sounds a bit like a footy game. They've got breast pieces, they've got shoulder pads, they've got headgear, they've got special underwear like skins. There's special stones that the priest will wear to symbolise that he hacks on behalf of Israel. The names of the 12 tribes are engraved into the stones. He's representing them. It is The detail is immaculate. Then it starts to get more serious. Very serious. For example, look at chapter 28, verse 35. It's just describing the priests and what they'll wear. Verse 35. The gold bells on the priest's clothes and the pomegranates are to alternate round the hem of the robe. Aaron must wear it when he ministers. The sound of the bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord. This is not the most holy place. This is just the holy place. And when he comes out, so that he will not die. So that he will not die. Chapter 28, verse 42. Make the linen undergarments as a covering for the body, reaching from the waist to the thigh. Aaron and his sons must wear them whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister in the holy place. 
so that they will not incur guilt and die. Chapter 30, verse 20. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it, from the basin. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Now look, if this was going on today, work cover would be having a fit. They would close this down. You don't have your bells on, you die. You don't have the right underwear, you die. You don't wash your hands, you die. A couple of years ago, Barack Obama visited Australia and the preparations were incredible. There were a dozen FA-18 Hornets patrolling the places that he visited. There was a bulletproof car that had to be flown in, chemical warfare-proof, bulletproof, bomb-proof. There were homeless people being cleared out of entire suburbs to to clean up the uh, Canberra and Darwin, and they were given temporary free accommodation. The entire Parliament House closed down. When the Queen visited a few uh, years earlier, preparations were made. People were trained how to act, how to address her as Your Majesty. How that when she has the last mouthful, everyone else needs to stop eating and so on. Why is all that stuff going on? Why all the preparations for those important people? Well, there's a few reasons, aren't there? One is safety. Not the safety of the people, the safety of the US president. Bulletproof cars, FA-18s, they're for his safety. Some of it's just to show respect. There's a lot of rules around the Queen because she is so special and that's how we show her honour. In the book of Exodus, there are a stack of preparations for God coming to meet with his people. And yes, some of them are about us appreciating how holy God is and honouring him. But some of them are for safety. Not God's safety. He doesn't need protecting. They are there for Israel's safety. And if you get nothing else out of Exodus, please see this. There is lots that needs to be done so that sinful people can come before a holy God and not die. And it's about to get even more serious because now in chapter 29 it starts to talk about what the priests will do. And really it's just chapters about blood. 29.10 Bring the bull to the front of the tent of meeting and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head, slaughter it in the Lord's presence at the entrance to the tent of meeting. 29.15 Take one of the rams and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head, slaughter it and take the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides. Verse 19, take another ram, Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head, slaughter it, take some of its blood and put it on the lobes of the right ears of Aaron and his sons on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet, then sprinkle blood against the altar on all sides. 36, verse 36, sacrifice a bull each day as a sin offering to make atonement. Verse 38, this is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day, two lambs a year old. If you feel a bit queasy when you give blood, you don't want to be around when all this is happening. There is blood everywhere. Blood on the altar, blood on the ears, blood on their hands, blood on their feet, blood being sprinkled, blood being poured. Why? Verse 45. Then 
I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. This is all what needs to go on because God is a holy God. He cannot tolerate sin. People like you and I and the everyday Israelite can't just walk on up to God because we are soiled by sin. He is a perfect God who is angered by sin. We are full of sin. And so the priests need to offer sacrifices to pay for the sin of God's people. And that's what this section is all about. As you read through it, firstly, the priest's clothes are purified by blood. Then the priest himself is purified at the outside altar. And then the altar itself is purified by more sacrifices. And then, only then, now that the priest is purified and his clothes are purified and the altar is purified, now that priest can come before God. And then, being cleansed from his sin, he can go into the most holy place just once a year. And on that most holy altar, he makes what is called a sacrifice of atonement for the people of Israel. Chapter 30, verse 10. Once a year, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning offering for the generations to come. It is most holy to the Lord. This is what is fixing up Israel's sin. Atonement is fixing up wrong. I was sitting down at the traffic lights, I think it was the year before last, minding my own business. There was a car in front of me and I don't know what he was doing, but he must have put his car into reverse instead of forward. Because the light goes green, he accelerates backwards straight into me. Not great. Now, the right thing to do, and he did do it, was that he arranged for my car to be fixed. That's what atonement is. Atonement is fixing up the problem that you've caused so that you can be back on good terms. Now, anyone could have made atonement for my car. Anyone could have paid for it to be fixed up. Actually, I don't think it was him at all. I think it was his insurance company. But the point is, the car was fixed up, the damage is now repaired, it's put things back to how they were. That's what atonement is. We have wronged God. That needs to be fixed up. We can't fix it up. God fixes us up. He makes atonement. And all these chapters about all the sacrifices and all the animals that need to be killed, it is showing us how serious that is. All the washing clean of the priests, it is costly at every stage because God is holy and he can't tolerate sin. But he wants to live with his people, so he needs to clean them up. And, you know, I can't help compare it with Genesis 2 before sin where God is walking in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve and it was that simple. And yet after sin, all this stuff in Exodus is what needs to be done for God to dwell with his people. Now, look, I've skimmed over it this morning and tried to make it as interesting as I can. But go home and read it and my impression was this is boring. For Israel to dwell with God All this stuff has to be done and there is just detail after detail after detail. Have you ever talked to someone who's uh, planning or building a new home? 
They come and they, they're picking tile colours and they're picking brick colours. And let me tell you, it is boring to talk to them. But they're actually excited. They're excited about whatever fancy colour tiles they're going to have and whatever bricks they're having because that's their, that's their home. They're going to move into it and, and they're planning it all. Israel here want to live with God. Of course they'll do all this. Maybe they'll even be excited by it. Imagine if it was you building a dream home, but imagine that you don't have to build the home at all. Imagine it's just there right now. Someone's going to build it all for you. It is perfect. It's got exactly the right amount of rooms that you need. It's got a sewing room if you want it. It's got a home theatre if you want it. It's got a gym if you want it. What you want, it's got. It's got the perfect colours that you like. It cleans itself. It's got the perfect flatmates. You don't have to do a thing. It's there. It's perfect. That's crazy, unbelievable, I know. That's a little bit, though, like the difference we have with Jesus compared with what we've just been reading in Exodus. Turn with me to Hebrews 9. We're going to leave Exodus now. Just turn to Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9. We've just had seven complicated chapters about what Israel need to do to have to meet with God. And then in the in Hebrews, the writer helps us understand everything that we've just looked at in Exodus and what it means for us who follow Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly, earthly sanctuary. He's talking about Exodus, verse 2. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. That's Exodus. Verse 5. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Thank goodness. Verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priests entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance, just like Exodus. Now, what was the point of it all? Verse 8. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place, and the writer of Hebrews is changing his wording here. He doesn't mean the most holy place in Exodus. He's talking about God in heaven. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the real most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices back then being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. In other words, all that stuff in Exodus didn't actually do anything. Blood of goats and bulls can't get rid of sin. Sin is far too serious. It was all just an illustration, a preview, pointing forward to Jesus to help us understand what is needed to get rid of sin. Verse 11, when Christ came 
as the high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He's talking about heaven. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. See, the blood of goats and cows in Exodus didn't actually get rid of sin. It couldn't. But it was showing us what Jesus would do by his blood. And so as followers of Jesus, we can come before a holy God, but we don't need any of that stuff in Exodus. It's all been done for us by Jesus. Verse 13, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that, so that they're outwardly clean. In other words, it's not changing their heart, it's just an outward thing. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, in other words, Jesus was perfect, how much more will that cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Our guilt, our guilty consciences, all that stuff we've done, all those thoughts we have can all be cleansed, gone, washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Jesus, by his death, offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for atonement for our sin, to fix us up so that we can come to God. And of course, the flip side of that is you don't come to God his way. There is no other way. I walk out to catch that aeroplane and the boarding gates are closed. I'm not on the plane. Aaron forgets to put on his bells or wash his hands. He's dead. You face God without coming through the work of Jesus. You face God with all your sin unforgiven. You do not want to go there. And thankfully, you don't have to. Because Jesus, by his death, atoned for sin. And so look, for us, quite often we read a passage and there's something that we need to do. Here, that is the point, there's nothing to do. You don't need to go and build an altar. You don't need to go and offer sacrifices. You don't need to put on some fancy clothes. You can approach the holy God confidently because of what Jesus has done for you. How much more then will the blood of Christ cleanse our consciences so that we may serve the living God? Let's pray. Father God, we are people who are by our old nature, sin. And by ourselves are guilty before you. And so naturally, we try and excuse ourselves and downplay our sin and, and try and convince ourselves that it doesn't matter. But thank you that in the book of Exodus, you show us so clearly how serious sin is to you how offensive it is in your sight and how people cannot come before you unprepared.
But yet thank you that you love your people enough that you are willing to dwell with them after you clean them. Father, thank you that through Jesus you have made atonement for us. That if we confess our sin to you and turn from our old way, we can be forgiven. And Father, this morning, please just help us to understand how wonderful that is, that we can dwell with you, a holy God. Thank you for Jesus. And thank you that for all that he has done by us. And please cleanse our consciences. Father, help us know that we've been washed clean. There's nothing that Satan can point at us and make us feel guilty. It is all gone in your sight. And please help us to serve you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.